Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me, as always, are my co-hosts, Aaron. Say hi. Hello there. Hello, General Kenobi. I, one of these days, I'm going to actually get that, like... The soundboard. Yeah. No, 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 I'm just going to get it no. right, you know, and, and just go right. straight into the General Grievous quote. Every week, I think we spend far too long on just that. It, it does, yeah. <laughs> and anyway, and hello, Drew, my other co-host, how are we doing? Oh, hi. Oh, hi. See, I'm used to that one. I don't know why. I think you've been... Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm prepared. This is really? going well so far. Christ on a <laughs> stick. <laughs> anyway, what have you two been up to this week? Come back to us, Gareth. Yeah, come back okay. to us. Yeah, right. you, you go first. <laughs> well, as for, as for sort of getting out and about, I've not done a giant amount apart from gardening this week myself, but I've discovered a unique and interesting thing that you can do if you happen to have a bathroom, a bathroom window, and a light, you can turn your bathroom into a moth trap because the other day we forgot to close the bathroom window and turn the light off. So by the time we went up to bed to open the door to the bathroom, we had an absolute whale of a time IDing all of the different moths that had flown in and decided to just land on the bathroom walls. So consequently, I've, I've done a bit of a, a moth survey, I suppose, whilst trying to then you know clear them out of the room. Uh, at the same time we had some interesting ones we had a willow beauty which a very nice striking sort of black and spotty uh moth and a oak egger moth and the the hilarious thing about both of those moths is that even though they've got different trees in their names they apparently do have nothing to do with those trees they don't eat them the larvae don't eat them all sorts so uh yeah moth trapping in your bathroom hmm. so good. what have you what have you guys been doing i've given you enough time now i remember what you've done <laughs> we're old again, men now Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> I, again i took the um little, little girl down the beach rock climbing and um rock pulling looking for all the creatures in there but that was just one day the reason i was struggling to think was because that was the day after i last recorded and i've not done anything since then because i've just been trying to push my business and actually try and get some money through the door at the moment yeah. so, well, that's a struggle I think all of us can relate yep, to. Yep. Um, actually, talking of surveys, Gareth, um, I did a bio blitz. I, I took part in a bio oh, blitz. Nice. Because that was good. So we did um, did a bird survey, saw a fair few spotted flycatchers, actually, which I've not seen before. And during the bird survey, we also saw a butterfly that isn't often found either, a um, marbled white. So, Ooh, very nice. nice. And also, actually, I just want to say, too, it also reflected the uh, benefits of regenerative farming and rewilding uh, land that was originally just pasture and just left to sheep that just ate everything but and left one species of grass. And actually, the, the difference in species that you get when the sheep are removed and mm. it's allowed to grow. Um, yeah. I'll tell you very... what, not been actively involved in, but in, in preparing for this week's episode... Have you guys noticed how much juicy news there is this week? There's like there's, a, a, yeah, there's a lot. Paleo in, news, there's tons. There is. Paleo news, there's conservation news. I mean, I'm probably going to mention quite a bit of it in a bit. But uh, 
yeah, an embarrassment of riches is what what we're experiencing right now. Mm. Mm-hmm. I always tend to find whenever there's good, interesting paleo news, it's never the week that I have a news article. It's always on a week when I do a creature feature. Or are you suggesting mm. that the paleo news you bring is always the boring stuff? No, it's oh. usually stuff that I've no. like held well, over a week. Well, well, well. <laughs> he, he's moaning about an anti-Gareth paleospiracy. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah basically. Okay. It's all a conspiracy. Big, big They're all out to get me. <laughs> anyway, right. Well, coming up this week then for our creature feature, it's my turn again. And you know what? I thought I would take the criticism that has come my way from my fellow hosts mm. uh, that I have I've been lacking in uh, arachnids on the on my list. And you know what? That's that's fair enough. I haven't done a spider. Drew is the only one who has done a spider so far. Mm. But I'd like to point out that if we were to take every single species that we want to cover, we we both or we all know it's going to take us a long time to get to everything. And I, I you know I, I got more excited with some of the dinosaurs. I will say that dinosaurs are more my passion than spiders and uh, everything's going to pale in comparison to wetters. But this week we've got a critically endangered spider that looks absolutely stunning, which I'll get to after the news. So uh, let's get on into the news and see what we've got. It's the news! Right. Well, we're into this week's news, and Aaron is going to start things off with some good news. It's good news. In fact, it is good news. Very good news. But firstly, again, I just want to reiterate uh, that there's an absolute ton of juicy news to sink our teeth into. We had, or at least I considered, articles about seagulls being blamed for sea and beach pollution because, wait for, <laughs> wait for it, guys, sit down, mm. because seagulls poo. Yeah. There was also, also another one about gulls, which was they yes, own this was. village now. Gulls leave people <laughs> living in fear after spate of attacks. And that's oh, a fan- that just one. a fantastic image of a gull looking at itself in a, a, like a glass window. It's a, it's a great image. It looks very <laughs> ominous, very menacing. Um, Dinosaurs but, basically taken back their planet. Yeah. One that I really liked and I almost chose to expand on was British forests could flourish if we rewild links. The problem is the Times want you to pay for reading their, their stuff. So Yeah, well, it's so good, though, that. isn't it? That's it's, why. it's such top quality. It requires a it's, subscription service. It's such top quality that it says that links are the size of Alsatians. Now, they can reach a similar height in terms of up to the shoulder. That's what's your Alsatian. But Alsatians are like double the mass. Uh, in fact, some associations can be triple the mass mm. of, of links. Also, a really good one that's worth a read was uh, oldest DNA from domesticated American horse lends credence to shipwreck folklore. So there's actually like a, a myth, I suppose, that um, some American horses actually, their origin in a shipwreck, I think off the coast of the Caribbean, and it's from, they're from Spain. And it turns out this DNA evidence actually proves that that myth might actually be true. And the last one I'll mention, because it was fantastic, and I'd like to hear if Gareth actually did see it, because I did think I shared it to you guys, is uh, an incredible fish fossil that was found in and around uh, Stroud in Gloucestershire, UK. And it looks amazing. The fossilised fish looks like it was threatening Phil Mitchell from EastEnders when it got (laughs) fossilised. Yeah, it's uh, somebody I'd seen. Specific reference. 
Oh God, what's it called? The the bass thing that you have on your wall. That oh, big mouth Billy Bass. That's the one. Yeah, Somebody yeah. likened it to that sort yep, of yeah. beautiful pres- preservation of those fossils. Declaration. I don't watch. Haven't watched. Never will watch <laughs> EastEnders. <laughs> I don't go in for that kind of crap. Oh. Wow. Anyway, wow. Okay. Um, okay. The article that I've got nothing left. I just want to quickly mention as well. There was uh, there was another article that I was tempted to do this week, but again, just like last week, it was mainly just a headline. It was Otter trashes couple's holiday home, uh, is sick wow. on their carpet, and then falls asleep in their bed. Uh, Genuinely brilliant. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good headline. It's, it's been a really good week for news. Yeah. No surprises for guessing which one Aaron went with. Mm. I um, am a slave to my own biases. Yeah, sometimes. you're typecast. And no, I, do try, I do try to embrace it. There's nothing wrong with it. it. But yeah, the article I've decided to go with is, is the news that Nepal has officially doubled its tiger population, bringing both joy and fear simultaneously to the region. But it's great news. <laughs> so it's worth sharing. Good news. There's a lot to unpack. I will say that. But basically, Nepal has uh, has pulled off the extraordinary feat of more than doubling its tiger population over the last 10 years. This is, by the way, is a target that uh, the 13 tiger countries agreed with that WWF have been hammering hard over the last decade. Mm. The idea is bringing them back from the brink of extinction, but it has come at a cost to local communities in the form of an increase in tiger attacks. So there are two feelings when you come head to head with a tiger, says Captain Ayush Jung Bahadur Rana, uh, part of a unit tasked with protecting the big cats. Oh my God, what a majestic creature. And the other is, oh my God, am I dead? <laughs> he now often sees Bengal tigers on the armed patrols that he carries out across the open plains and dense bush of Badia, the largest and most undisturbed national park in Nepal's Terai region. Um, so, so basically, Nepal's zero poaching approach has worked to protect the tigers. The military units support the national park teams, and in buffer zones next to the park, community anti-poaching units monitor nature corridors that allow tigers to roam safely. Uh, that is one thing that I did want to just interrupt myself on in reading this. These nature corridors are super important. It's all well and good doubling your tiger numbers, but if they're isolated in national parks, you're going to run out of genetic diversity pretty quickly india was a country that i really worried about that because they had over 2000 tigers in fact they had the majority of wild tigers in the world were in india and they had very few uh, functional wildlife corridors at the time when this kind of project started and it was a real worry that these tigers were just going to become a very shallow gene pool anyway uh, one such strip of land the qatar corridor links badia national park with the I'm really sorry, Kataniagat Wildlife Sanctuary across the border in India. But the return of the tigers has created life-threatening challenges for people on the border of the park. The community lives in terror, says Manoj Gutam, a uh, eco-business operator and conservationist. The common area that tigers, prey species and humans share is so tight, there's a price the community has paid for the world to rejoice in Nepal, doubling its tiger numbers. In the past 12 years, 16 people have been killed by tigers in Nepal. In the previous five years, a combined total of 10 people were killed. So that's quite a jump. Uh, Most attacks occurred when villagers went into the national park or the buffer zones to graze cattle or collect fruit, mushrooms and wood. 
In some cases, tigers have emerged from the national parks and nature corridors, venturing into local villages. There are fences to separate wildlife and humans, but the animals have been able to get through. Badai Taru uh, has more than just battle scars from the beloved tigers he is helping to conserve. In 2004, he was actually attacked himself while cutting grass in the community forest near his village. He lost his eye. The tiger jumped at my face, he says, making this huge roar. I was thrown back instantly. Then the tiger hopped back like a bouncing ball. I punched him with all my strength and cried out for help. Sorry, I'm not laughing. They got attacked, but it's stories like like this of was it Brian Blessed punched a polar yeah, yeah, bear in the face. Bear, yeah. yeah, that it just harkens back to that. And Brian Blessed is a very loud man. If you if you don't know who that is, uh, certainly look him up. When he takes off his aviator sunglasses, which is something he rarely does, it reveals the deep scars and his missing eye. He says, I was angry and sad. What did I do wrong as a conservationist? But tigers are endangered animals. We have a duty to protect them. Hmm. The recent history of tigers has been bleak, the article continues. A century ago, there were about 100,000 wild tigers spread across Asia. Just for a moment, absorb that. There's now, largely because of hunting, poaching and loss of habitat, there are now thought to be between 3,726 and 5,578 tigers left in the world, according to the IUCN. Spread over 968 square kilometres, Bardia became a national park in 1988 to protect endangered wild animals, and the region was once a rural hunting reserve. So a really nice turnaround of use. So as I said, these 13 tiger countries... Uh, and WWF, along with them and other charities are involved, I believe, they decided to try and double tiger numbers across the tiger range countries by 2022. Why 2022? Because it's the Chinese year of the tiger. That's uh, that's why they wanted to use that as a significant marker, which I, I think is nice. Only Nepal has reached this uh, target so far, which very happy for Nepal and the work they've done. Very sad, though, that they're the only ones. However, I, we, we all knew each other at the time, and I've, I would have made it quite clear to you guys at that time that this was an, a nearly unattainable goal, in my opinion, because tigers had it all stacked against them, to be quite honest. Anyway, the tiger population in Nepal has grown from 121 tigers in 2009 to 355 today. Uh, the big cats can mainly be found in five national parks across the country. Other species, including rhino, elephant and leopard populations, have also increased. The reason why is because tigers are an umbrella uh, species, uh, meaning that if you protect uh, certain species like the tigers, like elephants in some places, uh, like pandas, these charismatic animals, and every species that shares that habitat with them, animal, plant or otherwise, is protected as a result. Anyway, to maintain a healthy population of wild tigers, park authorities have created more grasslands. They've also increased the number of waterholes to create an ideal habitat for the sambar deer, the tiger's main prey. People living near Badaya National Park have largely supported the conservation efforts, but as the tiger numbers grow, there's increasing unease. As well as coming onto farmland, tigers have also ventured into the nearby villages. The unfortunate thing of this, which I'm about to get onto, is that it has drawn the ire of the locals. So the, uh, there's more to this article, but uh, I think if I just keep reading it, it's, I could drone on. I think there's important points to talk about here, and I'll, I'll leave it there and people can go and read it, I think. Mm -hmm. There's something to be said for educating uh, locals. I, I don't mean that in a condescending way, but educating people on how to live and coexist with these large predators around. 
Well, it, it strikes at the very heart of every large carnivore living in an area where there are going to be people because people are everywhere. But if anything, this actually links quite nicely with my creature feature in a while. Okay. So keep this article in mind, everybody, because uh, a very similar sort of situation is occurring with mine. But very interesting to see that it, there's so many parallels between this era and and the likes of Yellowstone with wolves. The wolves Obviously, no one's yeah. been killed by the wolves, but livestock. But yeah. making people, in the defense again, of, educating people with, with, yeah. with how we need to live. And I, I promise, like I don't mean that in the condescending way. I mean it in the yeah. purest way. How do well, it's, how it's, it's more working with those people? How do we suppose, live? Yeah, yeah. It's also um, this is a global story. We want to push for a world where we live in harmony, not harmony, but we, we coexist with all these species, great and small, um, and that we can properly behave as stewards of the planet. But I do think that there is something to be said for making sure that people are protected and the animals are protected. Um, yeah, it's a difficult thing because I celebrate Nepal doubling their tiger things, but I do feel for these, these people that this is the typical British double standard we won't coexist with a badger but we're always telling people you must live with the tiger you must live with the lion like who are we to tell them what they must live with but the fact is from a completely non-biased cold ecological environmental kind of point of view if we want the world to function and continue to function we all in every country need to do whatever we can to rewild spaces and learn to coexist with these, these wildernesses in the best way that we possibly can. Right. Well, Aaron, that's given us a really good amount to think about when it comes to future human tiger interactions, the benefits, the costs, it seems like it's going to be one of those things that if, you know, minds can be changed on it, that should go forward and, and hopefully make things better. Um, mm -hmm. Drew, what have you got? Well, I have something similar, actually. And then the overreaching article is good news, I would say, but it's good. There's a cloud over it, unfortunately, and uh, and also it's technically not good good news for a very select minority of people. Mm. Okay. Well, do elaborate. So the article that I've brought with me uh, is titled "Game Over for UK Shooting Season as Bird Flu and Brexit Take a Heavy Toll." So, if anyone out there is wondering. What benefits does Brexit possibly have? And, you know, we've been scraping the barrel for a good six years now. Here's one. And uh, it's, uh, <laughs> potentially it's, uh, it's, it's made uh, exporting partridges into the UK from France, I believe. Uh, it's made that very, very difficult. And who do these partridges benefit? Well, no one but people who want to shoot them. So, yes, this is basically about, it's mainly about bird flu, really. And the article starts with this. It says, bird flu has managed to do to game shooting what animal rights activists have been trying to achieve for decades with little help from Brexit. So dozens of pheasant and partridge shoots have been called off ahead of the shooting season after an unprecedented outbreak of avian flu in France left gamekeepers in the UK with few birds to rear. At least 93 gamekeepers have been made redundant so far this year, and some shoots are likely to go bankrupt, according to Dominic Bolton, former uh, chair of the Game Farmers Association. So he said, 
That's 93 families that by and large will have had accommodation that comes with their job and a vehicle, he said. So they may well be facing the loss of everything. There's going to be a significant number of shoots that don't go ahead this year. Now, I do just want to add that I believe, I do not know this is 100% true across the board. It probably isn't across the board. I do believe that gamekeeping for these estates is a part-time job. It's not someone's full-time employment. Anyway, we'll move on very quickly. So about 70% of partridge shoots and nearly a third of planned pheasant shoots may be cancelled this year. Uh, and that means a huge reduction in the 57 million, 57 million red-legged partridges and pheasants reared and released each year in the UK. Now, it does also mention as well that grouse shooting, which we were talking about a uh, couple of weeks ago, will not be affected by this because grouse are not reared and released. They're already wild so it's unfortunate that it doesn't have an effect on uh, on that, really. But, I mean, that's the article does go on for quite a while, really. But, I mean, it, it, it says that groups of, such as Wild Justice have campaigned for a reduction in the releases, saying that only 30% of the birds are shot and retrieved, which means the survivors indirectly affect protected wildlife. I mean, we know this for, to be true, really, because all of those birds, not all of them are going to get shot, and they do affect our wildlife, and they are invasive. And, you know, you don't really need to have a license to just release millions of them out onto the countryside. And it says the RSPB uh, says that birds of prey are killed illegally to protect gay birds. And again, there's plenty of evidence of that uh, around. It also objects to the use of poisonous lead ammunition, which uh, the government is considering outlawing. That should hopefully not take them too long, because why, why would you have that? It should hopefully not take them too long for the very simple reason that they've taken back control, Drew. They can make their own laws. And they can, do yeah, they we can, can do whatever we want now. That is true. Yeah. That is true. So no, it shouldn't take you long, really, should it? But anyway, so that's, I mean, that's basically the article, really. The, the title sort of says says what's going on. You know, this year is going to be a terrible shooting season for people who go out and shoot because, uh, because of bird flu and because they, um, they've struggled to import birds in from France to, to bolster those extra millions that we need to fire at. Mm. I tell you what, the the fact that there was in fact a bird flu outbreak uh, in Devon reported either earlier this mm-hmm. week or la- late last week, yeah. um, which is a damn sight earlier than it's been the last couple of years. It's just getting to a point now where it's going to be a background amount. Now, thankfully, in in a in a way, that's kind of good for certainly native and for farm birds because, well, like with any kind of virus, unless it mutates and you know, become something horrific as well. Mm. Um, the surviving birds will be more immune to it and will hopefully pass on that immunity to their, their offspring. But this is just another knock-on effect of climate change. Rapid temperature increases means that we mm-hmm. end up with these viruses hanging around for longer and just getting more time to, to wreak havoc. There is now a point where there would be no point in building new captive bird enclosures whether it be in the sense of uh, a zoo or a even, I suppose, for some of these gamekeepers, although I, I have a sense that they're probably not thinking along the same lines of making sure their birds don't get sick, considering they're just chucking them out to uh, then shoot at, yeah. <laughs> that uh, any aviary should have an indoor area that is still large enough for these birds to be able to exhibit natural behaviours um, for a good six months of the year almost, you know? I went to a small farm park the other day that they'd actually done that. They'd knocked through and they'd built an indoor aviary into the side of a barn. It was for only things like Java finches and budgies and that, but 
in doing that, they'd provided them with somewhere that's an acceptable undercover Avery that that works really well. I was I was quite impressed for such a small place that had probably very little money to spend on you know animal buildings and and, and things like that. But bird flu is just it's here. It's here to stay. Unfortunately, I think. Mm. But if it helps to cripple an industry like that, I'm kind of okay with it. Well, you know, we don't need blood sports. There's no real need for it whatsoever. And if this is the only tangible tangible benefit of Brexit, it's actually, it's still not worth it. But uh, it's at least a benefit that we've seen. Might be rather than seeing a partridge (laughs) going around at the moment. A non-native partridge should die. A non-native. We do have partridge. some. We do have some native ones, but not red legs. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I would say that I shed a small tear for all of those people who own those shooting estates and the people who work on them. But I'm afraid my eyes are as dry as if I'd just taken a hairdryer to them. <laughs> it's a bit like when you hear about people who've been in the whaling industry and their ship has sunk or something like that, and you're like, okay, I'm finding it hard to care. You know. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, so good news in some ways, bad news in others. It depends on how you look at it. Well, bird flu um, is bad news, but you know, bird flu is definitely bad tiny, news. Tiny, yeah. tiny, 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 tiny benefit to it. Yeah, and to sliver it, of hope. Yeah, uh, right. Well, let's move into our creature feature now, where it will be my second Indian species. The last one was very much extinct, but this one, thankfully, shouldn't be. It's the creature feature. Okay, we're into this week's creature feature. Uh, and like I prefaced this at the beginning of the show, this is a spider. I, I've racked my brains with which spider to pick for this because this one's been a while in, in the works. I thought, well, let's not just go for one that would be considered bland or boring, I suppose, to look at. There are quite a few venomous or highly venomous spiders out there. All spiders are venomous, but... I was just about to say, are not all yeah, spiders. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, so, you know, there's there a wide range that I could have chosen from, uh, but I thought I'd start one off with possibly the flashiest looking spider. I wanted to, to beat the um, ladybird spider in, uh, in flashiness. So uh, it also beats it in size, this one. I mean, that's not a hard competition when it comes to the size of a ladybird spider because they are pretty ditty little things. But the spider that we are looking at today, the creature feature for this week is the Gooty Ornamental or the Sapphire Ornamental or the Peacock Tarantula, also known as the Peacock Parachute Tarantula as well. Or as it's more often known in the pet trade, the um, Metallica Spider, because its scientific name is uh, Poesothelia. Oh, jeez. Poesothelia for whom the bell tolls, yeah keep that in oh, all right. <laughs> uh, its scientific name is Pocillotheria metallica now it's not named after the band metallica but tarantula keepers and uh, invert keepers being what they are a lot of us quite like rock bands metal bands so it's one of those things that people see it is, and they is that as go, a rule not as a general rule no okay. but there are an awful lot of people that the, the line crosses over and it, it does seem to blur, but uh, this is one of the most stunning looking spiders you could ever hope to see. And Absolutely. I say ever hope to see because uh, they're not exactly easy to see outside of captivity. So the, the peacock uh, ornamental or gooty ornamental, uh, they are a stunningly 
attractive looking tarantula. So their body is sort of um, a pale blue color going through to like almost electric blue in color. They get the sapphire part of their name. It definitely is true. They've also got blue legs as well. The legs themselves have got little sort of uh, on their sort of knee joint areas, uh, as it were, got little white to yellow patches as well. Uh, And running down the center of their body, it's the best way to describe it is a geometric fractal coloration, where if you look at it closer, you'll see that it's sort of like this tan to yellow color strip running down the center of their abdomen and their thorax, uh, which is, or cephalothorax, which is the two different parts of the spider's body, mirror imaging to each side. They just look absolutely stunning. The spider itself, uh, size-wise, it's not one of the largest species out there, but its leg span can get anywhere up to about six inches, females being slightly larger than males, males tending to be a bit more leggier, so they might even look like they've got larger legs, but they're not massive. But they are arboreal, which means they live uh, in the trees um, as opposed to on the ground where most tarantulas tend to live. Uh, And it's an old world species of tarantula as well, which means that it doesn't flick hairs off its abdomen like the new world uh, tarantulas can. Um, These guys have to rely on hiding and at the very most biting. Uh, And that yellow coloring that's on their legs, that actually is a good warning sign. If you were to really, really annoy one of these spiders, what it'll do is it will rear up with those front legs, show you its fangs. And around its fangs uh, and its um, chelicera, as well as its front legs, that yellow color stands out really strikingly as a good warning sign, you know, that it's not worth tackling this animal because it could give you a, a nasty bite. Their venom is not particularly potent. It's what's known as a mechanical bite. So it's the size of their fangs is what will do the damage is by having these things puncture into you. I've never been bitten by a tarantula, thankfully, um, but I've read some reports of people who have, and these mechanically significant bites do hurt uh, along the lines of having, say, cat's claws go into your, to your flesh. That I have had happen, and it does hurt. Aaron, I think you've probably had the same, haven't you? Cat's claws going into your flesh. I've had oh, an yeah. ocelot get its claws into my face once. Caracal. Um, oh, nasty. Mm. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) that's essentially the sort of mechanical bite that we're looking at uh, and then being inflamed with the venom. It's uh, it's supposed to hurt, but not do anything serious to human. So, like I say, these beautifully blue spiders, the the older they get, the colors tend to uh, to mature and become more blue. And it's actually less significant in adult males. So it's the the adult females that look the most stunning uh, as they uh, they get older. So this spider, like I say, has the name of Gooty Ornamental. Now, they come from India, and for the longest time, uh, it was actually completely and utterly unknown where this spider actually comes from, because the original name, the Gooty Ornamental uh, spider, is to do with the fact that the first specimen of this spider was found on some trees, or on some logs, basically, on the back of a train in Gooty Station. In, I'm going to butcher this now, and I apologize to the millions of people who live in India. Uh, so from Adra Pradesh, India, which is the southeast of India. India is a very large place, and Guti is a very, very tiny little place. When this f- spider was first found, it was established that they weren't actually living in and around this train station. 
these logs that it was living in had come from another part of India. And for a long, long while, uh, it disappeared. This is 1899. It had disappeared from sort of people knowing where this thing had come from. Um, so it became a bit of a mystery species as to uh, where they're from. So the name sort of stuck of them being called the Guti Ornamental. But in 2001, they were rediscovered living in a different part of India, only a short distance away from where this train had evidently come from in Guti. It was found in a small area of forest. This area itself is actually less than 100 square kilometres for you uh, imperial people out there. That's 39 no, no, no. square. Leave them. No? Leave them. No? Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, you can work it out. Work it out. <laughs> I wouldn't have a clue to work it out. <laughs> um, it's an area called the Sesh Achalam Biosphere uh, Reserve. And it's still in Adra Pradesh, uh, which is that sort of same area that Guti, uh, the Guti train station uh, was. So it was rediscovered living in this small forest. And effectively, it's been, well, heavily preserved to keep this species safe. So after their original discovery, uh, not very much was able to really be found out about these uh, particular spiders until 2001 when they were rediscovered. And as it goes for their distribution, it's in a very, very small area. Like I say, the whole area is only 100 square kilometers. This means, combined with the fact that this bioreserve is actually crisscrossed by human habitation, human worship sites, uh, and just generally people using the area for forestry, for agriculture. This, even though it is a biosphere reserve, is still heavily trafficked by people every single day. It actually means that they are critically endangered. This is one of the most uh, endangered tarantulas on the planet because they are found in such a tiny, tiny area. Now, obviously, other things add to their endangered status. Um, there is a trade. Uh, there is obviously the pet trade, uh, where people will come and uh, try and seek them out. Thankfully, though, that doesn't seem to happen anywhere near as much. Um, and I'll touch on them in captivity towards the end. But the behaviours of these spiders, um, like I say, there wasn't very much known about them for quite a while. But there have been one or two studies that have gone into the areas around. Um, this reserve looking for these spiders to basically check their numbers and to find out more information about them. Um, the spiders themselves, like they are arboreal. So they're found in the hollows of trees in the, uh, in the forest. The forest itself is what's termed as a tropical dry deciduous forest. Uh, looking at pictures of this, this part of India, it is very, very grandiose. There are massive sandstone cliffs uh, with, tropical forest basically covering a good chunk of uh, the untouched areas it's a very very picturesque part of india by the looks of it and would very much be worth visiting if you get the chance i certainly wouldn't mind uh, going there to see to see if i could track one of these spiders down and, and have a look at them they're generally shy so good luck trying to even see one as well and prefer to hide away completely hidden away most of the time uh, and if they're spotted they don't have the best of vision, but if they feel vibrations or they get close enough, they're going to try and dart away and stay hidden. They're mostly nocturnal as well and only tend to make little trips out of their, uh, their, uh, their homes looking for food, which they'll sense by webbing up their tree hollows to keep themselves nice uh, and secure. Because these spiders 
don't use their webs for catching prey. They have to actively hunt it. They use their webs to basically make their uh, tree hollow into a nice, secure place for them to live. Also waterproof as well, because this part of uh, the world has monsoon seasons. So their webs actually help to keep their burrows nice and watertight, effectively. Uh, for anyone who has ever cleared out a tank that has had a arboreal spider living in it and you've cleaned out the cork bath that the spider calls home or whatever space their web is really really sort of it's almost papery to the touch but it's sort of like wax paper as well it's it's really really an interesting sort of feel and it it really is watertight it keeps the water from seeping in and making their their lives horrible so they live high up in the trees and they tend to poke themselves out and go and grab uh, usually flying insects that have come too close to their trees, cockroaches as well. That's the average sort of food that these guys like to eat. Crickets, pretty much anything that they can get their fangs on, which they'll then pull in uh, and eat. So, you know, it's a bit of boom and bust as well for these guys. They have to make sure that whatever they catch uh, is going to be enough to fill them up. Males have also got to make sure that the females are well fed around the, um, the breeding season. Otherwise, there is a good chance they may become part of the meal. So uh, they'll be hopefully finding nice, big, fat females uh, so that they don't get eaten. So a little bit more on the, um, the reserve itself. The, and I'm going to butcher the name again, Sesh Achalam Biosphere Reserve uh, was actually turned into a reserve uh, in 2010, which has really, really helped to protect this whole area uh, quite heavily. Like I was saying, it's a really, really heavily foot trafficked area in all sorts of parts of the park, apart from one or two specially designated areas that are there to protect the wildlife and um, keep them nice and safe. So you've got everything from seven different peaks of mountains throughout um, this national park. It forms part of what are known as the Western Ghats, uh, which is a larger mountain range that goes throughout India. So this is at one end of it or one part of it. Uh, and there are these uh, mountain peaks that are considered uh, holy. Uh, the, the peaks themselves uh, reach with the highest one up to about 600 meters. And they're said to represent the seven hoods of Lord Adisa Shah. I'm sorry if I've mispronounced that. Uh, the King of Serpents, uh, basically a cobra deity from um, Hindu mythology, which is oh, it's quite cool. It Obviously, it is a large area for people to make pilgrimage to these areas and see uh, some of these hills, walk up some of these hills as well. The other areas have temples located throughout them, and there are some pretty big temples uh, in these, the, these areas of the biosphere. There are also areas of the reserve where uh, red sandalwood uh, is harvested uh, to use in medicines um, and soaps and also spiritual rituals as well. And when I first read that, I thought that people were uh, making sandals, but then I realized that they were sandalwood, the actual tree, which in itself is a, an interesting tree, certainly worth talking about at some point. So, yeah, the spiders fall right in this, this zone where there are an awful lot of people going about their daily business, doing all sorts of different stuff. So I've just sent you to a picture of this particular part uh, yeah. of India, and you can see the, um, the size of this bio-reserve uh, and the core part of it basically is sort of, it's sort of working out from the center 
to the outside, the, the more and more protection, the very, very center of the, uh, the area, working its way out with less and less protection. So it's, it's a good example of what you were talking about in your, um, uh, in your news article, Aaron, of how you can have areas where people are able to essentially multi-purpose areas that allow people to be able to continue on with their spiritual and religious practices, but also at the same time, preserve some of the species there because the list of animals that live in this particular park includes everything from tigers uh, to sloth bears, elephant, right the way through to some of the smaller things like lorises, uh, as well as a huge number of endangered plants and uh, reptiles as well that live in these areas as well. So it's showing that, you know, you can have the two bits working together. I mean, this is a huge area. Well, it's a hundred square kilometers, which I suppose is large, but could be uh, a lot larger in, in some ways. Uh, do either of you guys have any, any thoughts on that? On... Um, what about corridors? If it's got tigers, if it's got large things like tigers in there, what about what about corridors in this place? Well, that's actually a good point. As much as I've tried looking into this particular area, all of the different sort of uh, bits of information actually failed to mention any sort of wildlife corridors. There does seem to be scope for that with the the gats region as it were but um yeah it was very hard to find any extra information this is a a, a wildlife part of preserve area sort of only set up in 2010 so it's still relatively new and india has a lot of uh, a lot of people a lot of possible conflict i suppose with large predators just like uh, nepal so there's probably a lot of pushback in in some parts of it to open up areas, I would imagine. Um, so yeah, these spiders live in a very, very small, very, very heavily trafficked and heavily, heavily sort of used area uh, of India. But because this sort of core part of this forest is very heavily protected and, and looked over, uh, it means that, well, they can hopefully be safe. But the spiders themselves are actually relatively easy to get your hands on in the UK. Now, I wouldn't recommend handling them purely because they don't like being handled. But if you've ever been to any sort of pet shop that specializes in exotic uh, reptiles or invertebrates, there's usually one of these spiders somewhere for sale, or if not, they're relatively easy to, uh, to obtain. It is a species that when it came into the uh, pet trade in around 2010, uh, they were very, very expensive to get your hands on because they were a desirable species. Because of this electric blue colouring, it made them the uh, the sexy-looking tarantula. You know, everyone wanted that one because it's it's got the colours to it. Uh, people want that. And this is a species that's in a family uh, that has at least six other spiders that all look very, very similar that just don't have this electric blue colouring. They all have this same... Uh, fractal patterning on their backs they all also have quite striking colors on the undersides of their legs but people don't want that people want you know electric blue standing out in front of them and consequently it meant that people were uh, you know clamoring for them originally and in fact in the u.s they're still quite expensive and it said that they can uh, even though they've been in captivity for 20 years uh, as a population which would have originally been taken from the wild around the time that they were rediscovered uh, in 2001. Uh, it sometimes have been known to be priced at $500 US 
for an adult spider and the spiderling reaching 100 to 200 dollars us which is a little bit insane i had a quick look just earlier to have a look at the current prices on some of the most reputable sort of uh, dealers of invertebrates and spiders in the uk for a two to three centimeter baby uh, they're currently going for about 30 pounds so the price has come down an awful lot over the years now evidently there's more people keeping them in the uk than there are in america and the prices are still a lot higher in america they are still around the 100 to 200 dollar mark which is um quite pricey uh, for a tarantula but if you want that stunning looking spider you're going to pay it and as such people have gone out and, and bought these guys and generally females are more prized because there's the chance that you might be able to breed them and they have a longer life females can live anywhere up to about 15 years of age males only tend to live about five years of age in captivity uh, a little bit less if you're uh, bad at breeding them because the female will well quite happily munch down on the male but they take well to living in in large terrariums but to be honest as a species, as stunning as they look, because they like to hide, there's a good chance you'll probably never see them most of the time and just catch glimpses of them uh, as you walk in the room and look into their tank and just see it poke around the corner. I've never kept this species. I've kept uh, one of their close relatives, the Indian ornamental tarantula, which I thought mm. was just as pretty. And in fact, you guys saw that same species. Yep. Mm-hmm absolutely gorgeous spider and they have those same lovely yellow markings on their legs just like their cousins do but they don't have that blue coloring i think they're just as as good so i did reach out to a friend of the at the podcast phil barber because i know he is a an avid collector of all kinds of different inverts as as well as spiders and he has kept them in the past so i asked him for his thoughts on on having kept them mm-hmm. uh, and he said they're very, very easy to, to basically keep in a lot of ways, which, if anything, has actually made their conservation uh, in zoos and aquariums really quite easy. It's meant that they're kept by a lot of collections and are bred by a lot of collections, which is good for the species and also means that private keepers are doing the exact same thing as well. They are known to burrow a bit occasionally. That's probably due to the fact that when you keep them in a tank, if you, unless you're keeping in one with a a whole tree in it they're going to be a lot closer to the ground where there's soil so they're still going to burrow because the tank you're keeping them in is obviously smaller and their setup can be really quite as basic as a piece of cork bark against the side of a tank with substrate and a water bowl they do really like planted enclosures because obviously it's closer to what they live like in the wild and their temperament, like I say, is, is not very um, uh, aggressive. They tend to hide away and only tend to get aggressive if they're really, really pushed. But he said they're one of the uh, the nicest spiders that he's kept. So it's really good that people are keeping them in captivity. Uh, and if anything, uh, it's probably a similar situation to tigers in the wild. There are far more tigers in captivity in, well, just in the US alone, than there are in the wild of, uh, of India and I think the whole of the, the rest of the Tigers range. Isn't that right, Aaron? Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's probably the same with these spiders as well. There are probably far more of them in captivity than there are in that very, very tiny area. Can so you, there's... In fact, I think you'd be, if you don't already know like the ratio, I think you'd be horrified. <laughs> well, yeah. Thankfully, this is a little, you know, people aren't breeding these tarantulas to have 
white spiders. I really hope they're not, at least anyway. But it's a really good sign that by create, you know, by helping to protect this area, there is a healthy captive population of these guys that can be put back into the wild. And thankfully, spiders are one of those animals that, as long as they're healthy, you know, they're going to quite happily just go to living in the wild from living in a tank. They're uh, they're pretty good when it comes to uh, sort of reacclimatizing to being wild. So uh, it's a really really good uh, thing in that sense. But yeah, that is the uh, the Gooty ornamental, a absolutely stunning species of spider, and one that's been on my list of uh, one day. I think I probably will have one in a, a nice large setup somewhere, just to uh, to occasionally poke my head in on and go. Well, I think I just saw it. I'll admit it's one of this one of the only spider species I've considered having as a pet. <laughs> they are, like I say, they are very, very popular. And wherever you go and whenever you go to any of these sort of invert fairs and, and different places where, well, spider uh, keepers tend to get together, there is usually a couple of them for sale somewhere. You know, it's because of that popularity that's meant that they're pretty much everywhere they're, they're very very popular uh in the uh, the uk sort of invertebrate market as well as uh, in europe as well mm. but um mm. one final note on that actually couldn't find very much information on the um the market for these guys in india or throughout uh, the rest of asia and unfortunately one of the problems that does tend to happen is with all sort of uh species that are in these these areas that are easier to just take from the wild than put in the uh, the time and the effort to breed there is actually a good chance that people will take these guys from the wild and when it comes to tarantulas and their rarity there are areas where people have to incredibly protect these animals because they can't really fight back and it doesn't take much to be able to go and catch one of these guys put it in a tub and then walk away and then sell it to someone. And there's probably no better example of that than a part of Australia. That I literally cannot tell you where it is because I do not know where it is. It's somewhere in the outback where several new species of tarantula were found. They're not anything overly amazing in sort of looks. Uh, they're brown in color and spend most of their day in a burrow. But because of the information of these spiders uh, got out, that you know new species had found people actually went out looking for these areas to be able to catch them to be able to sell on the black market so there is always unfortunately a black market for things like that and i believe in one or two of these areas people did manage to work it out from either pictures or from information that they've been able to wheedle out of people and some of these species disappeared entirely because those yeah. areas were just so localized and those spiders are now gone. So a whole species may be completely wiped out because someone wants to make a bit of money. And the same would quite easily happen in this, this part of uh, India, I think, if it wasn't so heavily protected. So, yeah, it's good to see that they are protecting not just the, the large, you know, charismatic megafauna like uh, tigers and sloth bears, but also the smaller animals, um, which can often be just as or if not more endangered um, as well. So, yeah. There is my first spider creature feature. Uh, I hope to do a, another spider at some point. I'm certainly going to kind of pick another one at some point. You've inspired me to pick a, uh, a species, but I'm not going to say which now. Well, I think maybe we should try and do a, sp a spider species special. Oh, God, too mm. many asses. <laughs> uh, 
find out when World Spider Day is. I mean, I would assume that was from that point that you uh, made in closing that your ornamental spider may well be a beneficiary of tigers as an umbrella species. Well, uh-huh. this is true. Which I mentioned yeah. in my article. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Well, let's move on from our creature feature um, into our emails for this week. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into this week's emails, and our first one is actually an old question that we've had sent to us. And, and to be honest, it's one of those ones I didn't feel 100% qualified to uh, to answer because as much as I like plants, I don't know anywhere near as much about them as I, as I could or should. So the, the email itself was from uh, Simon Barnes's uh, seven-year-old um, who sent in a volley of really good questions that we've had over the last couple of weeks but this was the one that sort of um was hardest to answer do uh, or can plants inbreed which is the more you look into it it's more of a um a bigger topic than you might think um so yes the the simple answer is yes just like all living creatures they can inbreed and the problems with that is are exponential you start to have a breakdown of sort of genetic information and you can have all sorts of different mutations occur. The biggest problem when it comes to things like this is the destruction of habitats, uh, which can reduce the size of local populations of different plants. Uh, And the best way to think about this is if you were to destroy a forest, chop it down into smaller and smaller areas to build roads through it, you're going to end up with less plants to be able to reproduce with each other. Um, So for plants in in small populations, it means a greater chance of inbreeding. Uh, where individual plants that are closely related to each other mate and produce offspring because there are only going to be so many sort of unrelated plants in a smaller area. And, you know, the the smaller you make it, the more chance that they are breeding with uh, a related individual. Uh, Inbreeding can often result in offspring that are weaker than the parents and can reduce the plant's chance of survival. They may not be able to fight off diseases, things like ash dieback, which is a still a big problem here in the UK. Um, you want a tree that is healthy and being able to, uh, to fight that off. Uh, many plants rely on animals for help to obviously allow them to breed, things like bees and butterflies and, and stuff like that, carrying pollen containing the male sex cells to other flowers that fertilize the plant and produce seeds. Flowers use a wide range um, of ways to attract animals, uh, such as their colors and scents, providing these with food. However, it's been shown in a couple of different studies that inbreeding actually alters these characteristics, which can actually make it harder for the inbred plant to reproduce, uh, meaning that the population then ends up shrinking even further and faster. So well, it's, it's got a, a real big Habsburg jaw, isn't it? And that's not attractive. <laughs> yep, all of those trees with Habsburg jaw. Oh, God. Just imagining a tree grinning at me now. <laughs> yeah. It's I'm actually picturing NCAA. Nigel Thornbury, if anything. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. He's an he's an incredibly attractive man. <laughs> so, scientists have actually set out to uh, to test this theory. Um, they studied flowers from um, a species called white campion, uh, which uses uh, moths to breed. And inbred plants had actually smaller and fewer flowers, and had a different smell. Uh, in particular, they, uh, they basically produce less of the chemical scent that the moths hone in on to come close to the flowers to then obviously pollinate the others. So they are, they're, they're basically smaller. They've got less color to them. 
and um, they are less attractive to animals that would actually pollinate. They basically track the visiting moths as well uh, to a, a mixed population of inbred and control plants, and fewer moths visited the inbreeding flowers, uh, particularly ones that were female, and this showed that inbreeding may accelerate population loss and extinction by making flowers less attractive to animals. Uh, this work highlights the impact of habitat destruction um, on plants, they said. Uh, mm. And it, it really does show that, like I say, if you start cutting down an area and leave less and less animal, uh, animals and plants, this will sort of happen and speed the whole process up to you to the point where the whole uh, system collapses. But you could see how in a larger system, those inbred plants are not going to be favored by those moths. So they would not then reproduce because, well, there would be more plants around that would be more attractive to those moths. But essentially, yeah, that's inbreeding in a nutshell for plants. You can inbreed a plant just like you can inbreed an animal. And inbreeding is how we've gone from having a wild dog, wolf ancestor to Pekingese and Chihuahuas and all sorts of different things like that today. So we bred for the selective traits that we want. And exactly the same thing has happened with plants. That's why we've ended up from going and having the tiny, tiny little wild tomato that would almost be toxic to humans to eat to the over 10,000 varieties of tomato that we have today because it's been selectively inbred and bred uh, over thousands of years to, uh, to be able to come up with what we have today. So there you go. Rather in-depth answer. And hopefully it's a good that, answer. Well, it, it was one that I got really, really quite into looking at the, um, the sort of habitat implications of. Bet you did, uh, you did. If, um, to, <laughs> at, <laughs> at the risk of sounding woefully uh, unqualified to be part of this podcast team, I, I knew that plant inbreeding was a thing. I didn't know it was as detrimental to the wider kind of environment and stuff as, so as the as wider it is for animals community. Yeah. That makes it sound very, very little indifference to, to animal inbreeding. Um, mm. Oh, I mean, yeah. people always seem to think this is what actually annoys me in a lot of ways. And it, it makes me sound like some sort of radical, let's not eat the plants. It wouldn't even be a vegan at that point, you know. But plants are living creatures too. They move at a much slower rate than us. And we're quite happy to, to think of them as just sort of background things, like almost like green rocks in a way, you know. They're sort of just there as, well, as a background. But I, th I think generally speaking, people do think that. But my ignorance didn't come from a place like that. I just oh, no, ignorantly no, no. didn't realise that they could inbreed. Because uh, I don't know... You guys, uh, especially Gareth, I would have thought, because you're a bit more into plants than myself mm -hmm. and Drew. But Drew's partner might be able to, to back me up on this. He's probably got more knowledge if than you, I do. If you guys, if anyone listening has watched the Jim Cameron film Avatar, the way the... <laughs> the yeah, you laugh, but the way the No, plants, no, no, I know. The way the plants communicate, ele like, uh, electronically, like that. It's called micro-rhizomal fungi. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's a not necessarily too far from from the truth. They no, it is. Done it's, studies it's... where trees send out an electronic pulse, like a scream, in a in a sense, to let others know that a forest fire is coming, or that someone, a woodsman, is coming with with an axe uh, and to prepare yourselves. Now, I, they're not. I don't really know what 
they can do to considerably protect themselves from that because they're not going to pick up their roots and start walking. But I do know in some way or shape or form that I've now forgotten, they do they, protect themselves in a way. So there's been studies shown, and it's like I say, it's this microrhizomal fungi that works with the tree roots of mm-hmm. those trees that will connect all the different plants and say a forest environment. Now, mostly they tend to connect related plants but it has been shown by looking at sort of uh, the ways that these work is so yeah some of the trees have, have been have been sort of noted to have almost passed food in an altruistic way uh, to each other through this micro rhizomal network and communicate with each other so yeah avatar wasn't that far off at all just my my thought instantly goes to people lashing their head tentacles to the head tentacles of other animals which is just raises questions but well, it raises even well, more is... questions when later in the movie that's how they <laughs> mate yeah, yeah, I, yeah i mean that's as far away from inbreeding as you could possibly get though isn't it? Oh, that's when you, true when you yeah. mate with a completely different <laughs> genera or uh, even like phyla i yep. know it's the the popular thing to to dump on this movie but I really enjoy it. And some of the concepts in it and the animal designs in it are fantastic. I think. That's fine. I, I don't dislike it. No, no. My... The majority, the vast majority of people do dislike it. And how Jim Cameron's managed to get a sequel with so many people dislike it. Uh, I felt thoroughly in the minority and enjoying it. Well, movie. I'm not so, I'm not so in favor of a sequel to it, but that's, yeah, that's a whole other thing. But uh, I kind of am because he's, he's gone underwater this time. And that's kind of Jim Cameron's specialty. He spent years under the water in submarines and stuff. Anyway, that's, that's your pop culture <laughs> corner, isn't but... it? You're uh, bleeding in there. So. The, um, the, the basic way to think of it is you're 40% genetically the same as a banana. So all life is connected. Uh, on this planet, it's all connected, short of an alien banana turning up. So, you know, inbreeding is possible in animals. It's possible in bacteria. It's possible in plants. So, yeah. We're all connected, Simba, in the great circle of life. Exactly. And if you if you go and dig your feet into the ground, maybe you'll get some micro rhizomal fungi and you'll be able to talk to the trees. Yeah. I would love that. That would what, be talk cool. to the trees. To be able to talk to the trees, yeah. Not in a tree bid kind of way where it takes hours to say hello, but certainly in like <laughs> a legolas kind of way where you can pick up on their feeling. That'd be cool. <laughs> I think they'd probably just be really angry at the at, at you that you know you can walk around and go and look at stuff. They have to look at the same thing every day. Ooh, there's a squirrel chewing me branch. There's a squirrel chewing my nuts. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to our other question that we have for this. Just for week. the listeners, I, d- I will keep that in. I didn't want to. Oh, God. <laughs> that was painful. Anyway, let's move on to our next question. Drew, what have we got? Uh, so the next question is from Definitely Human, who's still going strong with that who's asking maybe they're 40 percent banana 40 percent human 60 percent maybe do animals from deserts or from snow have bigger feet you know the more i hear his username the more i'm convinced he's not actually human (laughs) (laughs) it's a double bluff yeah um i took the time to answer this one definitely human uh so thank you for for continuing to send questions in yes um, thank you for logging onto the server and just connecting yourself to it <laughs> <laughs> even if you are a skynet or um or an ape planning your uprising anyway uh i think this is a great question which is why i'm glad we uh 
we got this one in because it deals with adaptations that have evolved kind of independently of of each other and yet are very very similar in form and function and it deals also with confusion in in terminology uh so when i say desert you say hot but actually that's kind of on point because most people will conjure a certain image of a barren environment that sees little precipitation uh, and that's probably the best way to identify such a habitat but if you ask them to give examples, the examples which I'm sure definitely human would, would agree with, uh, hot, arid uh, areas that receive little rain. So what if I was to tell you that both the Arctic and the Antarctic are deserts as well? What? They, yeah, mind blown. <laughs> I would, they I would call you an inbred freak and tell you to get out. <laughs> you inbred banana. That's it's quite harsh. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But both regions, hear me out, both regions are notoriously barren environments that see little to no precipitation, in their case, snowfall. Uh, and when it does snow, it doesn't tend to melt. It just sits for years, hopefully. Um, so when you ask who has the bigger feet, the desert species or the snow species, the short answer, it, and it's not a trick answer, but the short answer is they're all desert species. And so, so that's pretty much your answer. And you can you can see how they use their similar adaptations to thrive in habitats that to us humans look remarkably different. Um, so thick fur that helps keep the sand from irritating the skin in an abrasive way during the high winds of a sandstorm. It similarly, it's also used to keep snow from getting under and causing like frostbite and stuff like that uh, when you're in the high winds of a blizzard. Um, the long eyelashes that you find on desert animals either keep sand or snow from entering the eyes, sacrificing sight in both habitats. And lastly, most importantly for your question, of course, is that those wonderfully large feet, um, if we think of Bactrian camel and reindeer as our two kind of examples here, these prevent our desert friends from having to having their feet sink in the loose substrate that they live on. Uh, it allows them to stay on top of the surface by essentially spreading the animal's weight over a wider area. And this allows them to move more efficiently, more swiftly over the terrain and use less energy in doing so. They move far more fluidly uh, than we would. A good comparison would be using, I suppose, a, a horse uh, compared to your dromedary camels uh, when you're moving um, from site to site. So there is your answer. Desert and snow animals both have large feet. There's not much in the way of comparison or competition in this department because they are, in fact, both desert bound. In addition to this, it's, it's definitely a case of who has the biggest feet, individual species versus individual species, rather than desert versus sand versus snow. If you wanted to pick a winner between the two opposing desert teams, there's no Arctic Bactrian camel to compare to the Mongolian herds. Um, and there's no Saharan bears to compare to polar bears. Um, also, it's kind of important to establish whether you want to compare foot sizes or compare foot to body proportionate size, because they're two different questions. But my bet for the largest foot, just by foot size alone, would probably be polar bears, because they push about 12 inches, which if you wanted a clear cut winner, I'd say means team cold desert wins. 
but they're all desert creatures, so it's all good. The important thing is that desert species are often overlooked in favour of jungle species, and yet they are often the more interesting species just simply by the dint of having to evolve to thrive in such ridiculously harsh environments. Hmm. Hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a spanner in your works as well here for, like you are saying, size of feet to body ratio. I'm hmm. going to say Australian desert animals like kangaroos take that one. Yeah, they've got yeah, no, that's not a or jaboas from North Africa and gerbils Jibo- from, yeah, uh, from Asia. Yeah. All yeah, of those totally. animals, but even though because you, they're tiny, but they've got huge feet. Well, if you, I, I use the example just in, in foot size alone of the polar bear because mm. it's twelve inches. But then you can, yeah, polar bears got more mass, maybe more surface area. But if you go just simply from uh, heel to toe. Um, so yeah, it, it depends on the question you're asking, but essentially, either it doesn't matter because they're all desert species. Exactly. Hmm. Well, there you go. I hope that answered your question, even though it didn't <laughs> answer your question. Yeah, some really good questions this week with some really good answers as well. If I do say so myself, without honking my own horn, as it were. Uh, um, I really like the questions this week and a great <laughs> creature feature. It's unfortunate that your creature feature doesn't include a uh, animal impersonation, though. I mean, another spider, yeah. There's, there's not really anything you can do as part, apart from maybe like we uh, can't hear that, and all this won't be. I was, I was trying to, I was trying to like imitate them rubbing the chelicera together to oh. chelicera, oh. mouth parts basically oh. <laughs> where, they, where their fangs sit. But you'd really have to hack them off to get them to to make any real noise. But um, <laughs> yeah. If you too, dear listener, want to send us questions uh, like the two that we've answered today, you can do so by emailing us uh, at thenathistorycupboard at gmail.com. You can also send us questions on Twitter and on Facebook. Our Twitter handle is at NHCupboard. Uh, And we're also on TikTok as well for videos uh, and the like. And we are also on Instagram. And you can find us on T-Mill where we have all of our different T-shirts and merch uh, going up there uh, all the time so they're always fun to, to go and check out um, but remember if you like what you've heard you can leave a review or subscribe and all that sort of good stuff on whatever podcasting service you are listening to us on tell a friend tell an enemy tell a spider hiding in a tree in the middle of india and that just leaves me to say a big thank you to my co-host a big thank you aaron very welcome there you go found you there in the end <laughs> good good uh, and a big thank you to you as well drew thank you professor that's uh, that's all right I like it's, it's you know, been an education hasn't it drew <laughs> it's certainly been that i mean considering that's sort of our remit that's kind of what we're supposed to be trying to do so hmm. good good uh, and a big thank you to you at home for listening uh, and we will see you next time here in the natural history cupboard bye you know we're something of an arboreal arachnid ourselves Ooh. <laughs> you know, I'm something of an inbred myself. <laughs>